Today's scripture comes to us from the 42nd chapter of Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. The word of the Lord. Well, as you can see from these three Advent candles, we are at the third Sunday of Advent, and our, our passage this morning comes from a traditional Advent source, and that is the prophet Isaiah. And when we think of Isaiah, it's really it's one of the most magisterial books in the Old Testament. And uh, the early church fathers referred to the book of Isaiah as a fifth gospel. You know, in addition to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have Isaiah. And it certainly was one of the primary sources for the four gospel writers, cited more than any other Old Testament text. And, and it was how they interpreted who Jesus was and what he came to do. And, and, and it almost certainly shaped Jesus' own self-understanding of, of who he was and what he was doing. And Isaiah, it's not just a rich gospel text, a rich source for reflection on who Jesus is, but, but it's almost like a Bible in miniature. And these are just coincidences, um, because, you know, when I talk about it, it has, 66, it has 66 chapters, and the Bible has 66 books. Well, of course, the chapter in Isaiah, it's, it's arbitrary. But just to say that these are some helpful coincidences that can connect us to the greater theme and meaning of the entire book itself. So the Bible has 66 books and Isaiah 66 chapters. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah are, are what are called by scholars the book of judgment. And their predominant focus is God is punishing Israel uh, for its sin and, and, and Israel is being sent into exile and they're awaiting rescue. They're awaiting a savior. And we can compare this to the Old Testament, which is 39 books. And at the heart of those books is the law, whereby, where, before which all of humanity stands condemned. And, and the Old Testament, it ends with God's people in exile, awaiting a Messiah with the book of Malachi. And then we have the subsequent 27 chapters of Isaiah, known as the book of comfort, begins in chapter 40 with those beautiful words, comfort, oh comfort, my people, says your God. And the focus of those 27 chapters is God's gracious rescue and restoration of his people through this figure known as the suffering servant. And we can compare this, harmonize this with the 27 books of the New Testament that speak to this same reality coming on a universal and cosmic scale through the work of Jesus Christ, the suffering servant incarnate. 
Of course, Isaiah's prophecies are speaking to his own people and and their own time and circumstances, but because they are God's word, they speak beyond Isaiah's own historical situation. They're signposts pointing to God's ultimate future, the coming not just of an earthly king, but a heavenly king. The promise not just of the end of a historical exile, but the existential exile that humanity finds itself in because we have been estranged from God through our sin. A suffering servant that is more than a metaphor for the nation of Israel itself, but a real, actual flesh and blood servant like the one we meet in our passage this morning. In Isaiah 42, the passage that Doug read, it's, it's, it's the first of what are called Isaiah's servant songs. And they're probably the most famous passages in Isaiah because Christian interpreters have found from the church's earliest days, including the New Testament authors themselves, they've seen these as clear references to Jesus Christ. And so when we study the servant, we're studying Jesus. When we understand the servant, we understand Jesus. And we're so used to, we're so comfortable thinking about Jesus in these terms as the suffering servant that we lose sight of just how revolutionary it was to place these two things together, the Messiah and the servant, the king and the servant. In the ancient world, as to ours to a a large degree still, being a servant and being a king were diametrically opposed. There were contradictions. And you read these first four verses of our passage, and the one theme that sticks out, the note that Isaiah is sounding again and again and again, is that this servant is being sent forth to bring justice on the earth. What's justice? And justice is the right ordering of creation so that it flourishes. It's things being made right. And as you know, silly as, as the whole superhero thing was as a part of a, the Christmas play, wh- wh- why do people love superhero stories? Because they bring justice. They have their own complicated stories and, and histories, uh, but, but what they ultimately come to do is to fix something that is broken in themselves and in the world itself. And so we long for that. And the way that you bring justice on the earth, the way we see that happening, whether it's in the superhero story or in real historical situations, is you bring justice by force. You want justice, you want the world to be rightly ordered, you do it through coercion. So we turn to strong leaders who promise that they're going to get tough on crime or people who who promise that they're going to use the expansive powers of the state punish our enemies, or people who will raise their voices on on social media to name and to shame and to blame. That's the only way that we understand there's going to be justice in this world, taking it by force, imposing it on others, or raising our voices and demanding it. That's what God's people had hoped for, a a king, a, a strong man after God's own heart. A figure, a singular figure they could rally around who who would bring them justice, bring them home, restore the temple, set the world right, and, and, and crush their enemies. We want a king to rule, and who does God send but a servant? And how does this servant work? Crush his enemies? Isaiah says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Is he going to lead a rallying cry? Will he be the loudest voice in the room? 
No, Isaiah says, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. We want a king, we want strength, we want volume, we want loudness, and God sends a servant. We want a show of strength, and instead what we get is apparently a show of weakness. And that was countercultural then, and it is now too. Because so often we equate strength with brute force, and leadership with the person who has the loudest voice. For a recent example of this, I turn to my beloved and uh, beleaguered Timberwolves. They're a professional basketball franchise uh, in our town. Arguably the worst franchise in NBA history. Uh, of course, if you go by a record, you know, and how many game percentage of games you've won, um, which is maybe a good metric for judging how successful a franchise is in a sport where the object is to win. But anyways, I, I, I don't want to malign the Timberwolves, but I, I want to focus on someone who I think exemplified what, a false understanding of leadership, and that's their ex-star player, Jimmy Butler. Jimmy Buckets. And so Jimmy Butler thought, he thought that leadership was about being loud. It was about being noticed. Right? Jimmy was the person who came to practice earlier, earliest, and he left the latest, and he worked the hardest, and boy, was he happy to tell you about it. And, and, and this summer, he wanted to be traded. When that didn't happen, he came back to the team, and he came to this practice to show his leadership, which meant that he yelled and berated his teammates, and he attempted to exert dominance over them, and he said, you can't win without me. And he bullied, himself, and he bullied them, and then he called himself. He said, I'm a leader. Why am I doing these things? I'm a leader. And when, when some people in the media said, well, how is alienating your teammates make you a leader? He, he, he demurred, and he said, well... You know, there's just different styles of leadership. And I thought, here's a great player, but he's no leader. And the world, it it, it desperately needs less of that kind of leadership and more of Isaiah's servant. The servant like Jesus, who had everything going for him. In the beginning of this passage, Isaiah says he was upheld by God. He was chosen. God's soul delighted in him. God even put his own spirit upon him. So who could have greater authority, greater power, greater privilege, greater stature than that? And what does Jesus do with all that? He's compassionate on the bruised reeds of this world. And a bruised reed, it's, it's, it's the folks who are, are, are broken on the inside. And so broken on the inside that if anything else happens to them, they just might break. And strong people usually don't have any use for weak people. But Jesus, the gentle servant king, he he knows how to restore us from the inside out. And Jesus is kind towards the faintly burning wicks, people who are completely spent, exhausted emotionally, physically, spiritually. You're out of gas, you have nothing left in the tank. You ever felt like a faintly burning wick? It's exhausting. It's like you you have to give it everything, every ounce of effort just to make it through the routines of the day. What does Jesus give to them? Fuel. It's like the old, you know, church song. Give me oil in my lamp. Keep me burning, burning, burning. And instead of raising his voice, like an angry parent or, or shouting condemnation like an online mob, he quietly calls us by name. 
Come home, come home. Ye who are weary, come home softly and tenderly. Jesus is calling, calling, O sinner, come home. In his notes on these verses, the great English preacher Charles Spurgeon said, noise and weakness go together, but quietness and strength are frequently combined. That's so true, that noise and weakness are frequently combined. But quietness and strength, they belong together. And so at Advent, we're reminded that amidst all the noise, what we need, what we long for is the quiet strength of Jesus to rule in our hearts and in this world. And at the end of the year, when, when, when we're stretched to the max and we, we begin to almost suffer from compassion fatigue, we have a servant who never tires of doing good. When we're broken on the inside, when we're running on empty, when the voice of what is good and true and right in this world, when, when, all, when those voices seem silent, we can take solace in the fact that the servant will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. And so God's vision for the servant, it goes to the coastlands, it stretches to the horizon. And so the Israelites, they were not a seafaring people. And so with this language, what Isaiah is speaking to is, is this stretching over to the ends of the earth. God's plan encompasses the whole earth, not just one person or one, one, one people. It goes back to Abraham, where we started in the fall with God choosing one particular family to bless in order to bless all the families of the earth. So God chooses, upholds, puts his spirit upon his servant for the sake of the world to be a covenant for the people and a light to the nations. And so the servant has a worldwide mission, and his servant people do too. And we don't talk about it a lot, but that's why as a congregation, you know, as a, as a ministry co-op here, we support missionaries who are serving all over the world. I don't want to neglect that or ignore them. You know, we support folks like Doug and Evie Beal who they're now living in her native Brazil, which is actually the third largest sending country in the world for missionaries. And, and, and they're working there to recruit and equip folks to serve as missionaries in places where there's little to no local Christian presence. And we get to support like John and Jamie Tuvison, Mark and, and Sandy's son and daughter-in-law, Joy's brother, working with YWAM. Yes, they're based in Colorado, but they're working with folks all over the world to, to, to combat sex trafficking and human trafficking. And that's why our own Jeremiah Harvey, he, he, he was on a mercy ship before he moved back to Minnesota. And, and Amy Hardy, uh, she's going all over the world now through her job to just to, to be God's light and God's presence in places. And we can't forget that. We can become so parochial so often and just worry about ourselves and and our, our own little sliver of the kingdom here that we forget that God's vision is expansive. It covers the whole earth, that light to the nations. In a world that's sometimes so filled with darkness, we're reminded that the servant came to bring light and to, to follow him is to ask, ask that simple question, how can I be light? How can I reflect God's light, God's justice, God's righteousness, God's truth, God's gracious law out into this world, the light of his intelligence, God's wisdom, God's understanding, God's love. And for us at this moment, this particular Sunday, it's, it's, it's fitting to focus on the light 
because we're coming up on what is the darkest week of the year. Right? The days are still getting shorter. In the morning, I'm struck when I got to the bus stop uh, with my two oldest boys. I'm, I'm just struck in the morning how dark it is when we get to the bus stop and we, we, we get them on the bus. And I compare that with when the beginning of the year started and it was warm outside and it was bright and we were all going there and, and there was joy and now it's dark and it's cold and it's lonely and it's depressing and it's isolating. I mean, that's one of the things about the seasons in Minnesota is we get this taste of... Um, what it's like to be separated from the good things that God has in the world. We, we even It's the winter and it's dark, and so we isolate ourselves from our neighbors even. It's this remarkable thing. You know, when we moved in our house, we met our neighbors, everyone was so friendly, and then like six months went by, and we said, what happened to these people? It was the dark. It was the cold. It was separating us. And so we're reminded in, in our own particular place right here, that our environment reminds us of everything that God is not. And so this week as we prepare for Christmas and we, we look forward to the days getting longer, let the darkness remind us of our need and the world's need for light. And I close with these other words from Isaiah. Isaiah 9, where he says, The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death. Upon them Half the light shined. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me.